Will you open your Bibles this morning to, uh, to Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9? <clears throat> so already you can see I'm going to need prayer um, to try to preach through two chapters today. But I believe you'll see why in a minute. I think the, the, they could be preached in multiple sermons, but I felt like there's this, this broader picture that God wants us to have this morning. But before we read the text, um, can I just tell you right away, I need your prayer not because we're doing two chapters. I need your prayer because these are hard chapters. Um, and so I felt like the Lord led me to maybe ask, to not maybe, but to ask some questions before the reading of the scripture that I think will prepare us all for the reading of the scripture. Okay, so let me ask you a few questions this morning. Did you ever consider your prayers to be part of God's end times plan to accomplish judgment and redemption? Have you thought that way of your prayers? When you pray, how often do you see your prayers, in the words of John Piper, to be a wartime walkie-talkie, calling out to God to send in troops for the battle? Or do you occasionally see prayer as more of an intercom to call your heavenly butler just to get you what you want? Do you see the book of Revelation merely as a book about the events of the end times? or about the divine purpose and goal of the end times. And guys, that makes a huge difference. Is eschatology merely about what will happen or why things happen? That makes a difference. Do you see revelation as God doing all things for his glory in both judgment and redemption? third category is what do you think is the main problem people have with the book of Revelation? Is it whether to be premillennial? Amillennial? Postmillennial? Does it revolve around whether there'll be a rapture of Christians? Does it revolve around the need to know who is the infamous person with the name 666? Those can be concerns for sure. But typically the biggest problem people have with Revelation is about how much it speaks about God's judgment and wrath. Not only about how much it speaks about God's judgment, but how graphically it speaks about God's judgment. So my question to you is this. When it comes to the judgment our sins deserve, do you think more highly of the goodness of man and that the judgments of Revelation seem a little bit excessive? Or do you think more highly about the righteousness and holiness of God and the judgment that should come to a world of people who have committed cosmic treason against him because we loved his creation and not him. Because we believed we knew what was best for our lives. We believed that someone or something that can, can satisfy our hearts, not God. By believing that we will determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. And we need no help from God to do that by a people who slap away the nail-scarred hands of Jesus in his offer to save them from their sins. What kind of judgment should that receive? When you read the judgment and wrath passages of Scripture, do you go back to the cross of Christ to behold the price Christ paid to experience all of God's wrath for our sin upon himself? and to, to save us and to make us his own. How should Revelation 
affect your commitment to evangelism? Missions and the making of disciples for Jesus. Would you describe your current experience of evangelism as a daily commitment? Or something you do when it's convenient and just kind of falls in your lap? How should revelation affect that? And lastly, what role does repentance play in the salvation of a sinner? And why is it important? Hang on. Also, what role does repentance play in the sanctification of a believer? Why is that important? And what role does repentance currently play in your life today? I think these questions, as you'll see now as we read the text, why I think they could prepare our hearts for the divine intent that this text was supposed to accomplish from the Lord. So could you stand with me as we read Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it, directly, as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or in any plant or green tree, but only those who have not had, only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. 
In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it's Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Oh, Heavenly Father, please give me grace to be faithful to the divine purpose of this text. And then would you give us all grace to receive it, embrace it, apply it, be transformed by it, and be mobilized by it so that we might grow in both the character of Jesus Christ and in the mission of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Our main point this morning is this. This would be in your notes. God calls us to pray for his righteous judgments to be experienced today as an offer of his mercy that will lead to repentance in the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of saints. So I hope you, you saw that through the, both those chapters. First, the point is this. God uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes for the end times. Now, can I just be just very open and honest with you? I rarely think of my prayers like that. I'm, I am way too much a me-centered prayer. And oftentimes I'm not even a me-centered prayer. I'm not much of a prayer at all. I'm hoping that, that God could raise up our eyes as to first the pleasure he receives in our prayers. It's, and also the grace that he wants to give our prayers, to be a part of how he accomplishes his plans for judgment and redemption. Our prayers, you guys, you know, when we talk about, let's pray for Russia and Ukraine and Afghanistan and Somalia and, we, and North Korea and all, the, when, we're, when we're saying, Revelation 8 gives us 
this fortitude and this encouragement that says, oh my goodness, Lord, you really want to use our prayers in influencing the world for your glory. I hope that can come, I hope you can come away with that thought, maybe more into, as you take that into your own prayer life um, as you leave here this morning. So let's dig in. What is this half hour of silence? Um, well, nine times in Revelation, this is where a little bit broader view of Revelation is helpful. It speaks of the hour of judgment that is coming. And so this is just God's way of being able to tell us that, that, that there's this point where, where God is ha- having done all that he's come to do before Christ comes again to establish the new heavens and new earth, before final judgment is carried out and the new creation is brought forth with great joy and praise to his name. There is a place of silent reverence where all of creation and all of mankind has to essentially put our hands over our mouth because look at who he is and what he is doing and there's no questioning the wisdom or the righteousness of what he's doing. It's a, it's a period of limited duration. It's a time of waiting and worshiping, but it's so different, isn't it, from Revelation 4 and 5 where unendingly the, the elders and the, and, the, and the different angels are before the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. They can't stop singing. But now it's come to that point where final judgment will take place and the new creation will come, the new heavens and the new earth. And before that happens... There's a reverent pause. Not a literal 30 minutes. Remember, so much of Revelation is symbolism that is illustrating theology. Um, so so I hope you notice that in chapters 8 and 9, so many times John is saying something like this, something like this. He's, he's not giving us literal pictures in, all of, in, in every sentence. Uh, this, is, this is not a literal 30 minutes, but a period of time when all of creation bows to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, a Christian is one whose mouth has been shut. <laughs> uh, and isn't that, you know, really, that's a part of something that happened to me in my salvation. I used to have so many arguments about why I wasn't a Christian and all the hypocrisy of Christians and the errors in God's word. And when God convicted me of my sin and God convicted me of what Christ did on the cross for me, I I was silent. I had no excuses. I was guilty and I needed him. I think that's kind of what's happening here. It's a reverent awe. It happens when we see something great, something glorious, something beautiful. It happened to me when the doors opened at Lakeview Christian Center in New Orleans, and I saw Jan as she prepared to walk down down the aisle. Sweetheart, I don't know how you've just gotten prettier since then. She says, oh gosh, but I mean it. I, I was in awe. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, do you do a lot of small talk <laughs> around the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls? Do you just talk about the sports paint? I mean, these, yeah, there's, these, there's these awesome events in life that bring us to this place of reverence and quiet and focus. But then here comes in verse 3 an angel, and he has a censer. Uh, and it's, it's uh, filled with the incense that are described as the prayers of the saints. And he gets fire off the altar to, to, to set the incense on fire and to make it a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Well, the altar of incense was a piece of furniture in the Old Testament that was closest to the Holy of Holies. The censer would, would hold the incense with coals inside of it to burn the incense. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you might remember the priests shaking the censer of incense. Uh, it's, it's somewhat similar to what this is. Not, the meanings are way different, but um, incense is symbolism for the pleasure that God takes in your prayers. So let me just ask you, When you think of praying, do you think of God sitting on the edge of his throne saying, I can't wait. I can't wait for you to talk to me. 
I want to know everything that's on your heart, even though I already know everything that's on your heart. I'm going to listen to you like I don't know it. <laughs> because I love you. I welcome your prayers. And Jesus paid a really high price so that you could have this freedom to talk to me as your father and not your judge. It's a beautiful thing, this picture of incense. The, 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 then, though, the censer of incense and fire is thrown onto the earth where God's presence is felt with thunder and lightning and earthquake. God calls for the prayers of his people and he uses them as a means by which he defeats evil and puts away sin and, and puts away Satan ultimately. Our spirit-empowered and word-informed prayers make a difference, you guys, in how God conquers darkness, death, and the devil. Not because our prayers are much, but because God inspires them and uses them to be much. So please don't think small of your prayer life. We saw it in chapter 6, verse 10, when the martyrs are praying. And then in verse 12, God answers their prayers. Um, and, and, and when he brings the judgment that we saw unfold in chapter 6. Uh, we saw it again in, in, um, here in chapter 8, verses, verses eight uh, chapter 8, verse 3. You see it coming out of chapter 7 and, 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 and the, the, the church militant is on earth doing the Lord's will, bringing the gospel to every ethnicity and they're crying out in prayer, God please bring judgment against darkness and evil and sin and Satan and oh God save the lost, save the lost and use us to save the lost. Vindicate your name oh God and that's what the church militant is doing on earth and then there's this great multitude that no one can count. Their robes are, are washed white by the blood of the Lamb and they're crying out, oh God, bring judgment and redemption to glorify your name. That's all this crescendo of praying and God's inviting us to be a part of that. So when the angel throws down the censer to the earth and it causes this thunder and lightning and earthquake, it's pointing back to Exodus 19. Remember, we really are going to not do justice to the book of Revelation without knowing our Old Testament. And God makes his presence known on Mount Sinai and calling them to both holiness as well as confidence that he is going to lead his people into the promised land. So we should be praying for God's judgment to triumph over evil. If I use the word imprecatory prayer, how many of you would know what I'm talking about? Imprecatory prayers? So good numbers. Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm not a hand. I don't know why I ask you to raise hands because I'm not a hand raiser. I'm, I don't know. I don't want to. I think I might know, but what? If, anyway, that's so silly. Um, Imprecatory prayers are prayers that we see in the Old Testament that are divinely approved prayers where there's this cry to God to vindicate his name. There's a cry to God to bring about justice and judgment against evil and the rebels who are doing destruction on the face of the earth and to save souls. The way somebody described it to me once was apparently it was a true story and a man had just been in, voted in as a new governor of a state. And this Christian person comes up to the governor and he says, well, governor, I want you to know, congratulations. I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you. But please let it not be ever that I have to pray about you. You see what the difference is? Should we be praying for God's judgment to triumph over the evil of the world that's brought about by sin and Satan and suffering? Yes, we should. We should be praying for today's judgments to be experienced by unbelievers as an offer of mercy. Every judgment that takes place day by day by day around this globe of ours is an inv it's a warning of final judgment and it's an invitation to know Jesus Christ. So yes, we should be praying, God, bring judgments that can be experienced today as mercy so that people could repent and turn to Jesus for salvation. God wants to use our prayers to make dramatic differences in this world for his glory in salvation and judgment. But those things won't happen 
if prayer's not a priority for us. And I don't know that in the United States that we are so gospel-centered and, and Christ coming again, kingdom coming. We pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Well, that's judgment and redemption. I don't know that we're always thinking biblically and gospel-centeredly about our prayers, but God's inviting us to seek him and pray. Second point is this. God calls us to tremble at his judgments and to tell of his mercy. And that's chapters 8, 6 through 9, 12. Um, actually, I, I'm, I kind of goof there. I would extend that to, to 9, verse 19. As it pertains to the seals and trumpets and bowls, each of them depict God's ongoing expression of judgments. So get fasten your seatbelts because this is going to be kind of the storyline for many, many chapters to come. So ongoing expressions of judgment and redemption that take place between the first and second coming of Christ. So the seals are about what's going on between the first and second coming of Christ. The trumpets are about what's going on between the first and second coming of Christ. And the bowls, though they will have much more of an emphasis on the final judgment, still have a relevance between the first and second comings of Christ. So as Christians, guys, we're to see wars, natural disasters, injustice, crime, famine, economic upheavals, pandemics, man's inhumanity to man. We're to see them as expressions of God's judgments against sin and against evil. And, and we're to see them as merciful warnings to repent before final judgment comes. We're to see these things as birth pangs. So we're to see them as warnings about judgment and justice, but we're also to see them as birth pangs. Each one, each crisis, each trial, each world crisis, each national crisis, we're to see them as birth pangs that in which God is totally in control and he's moving this fallen creation to a day of new birth and a new creation where there will be no more sin and there will be no more tears and there will be no miscarriages and abortions and kids dying and oh my goodness let's keep moving but I hope you're getting where, where I'm going with that I hope you're picking up what I'm laying down I heard somebody say that the other day and I just thought that's, that's pretty cool it's not cool when I say it it's not cool when I say it I know that um so as we move from the seals to the trumpets, this isn't a chronological order for how these things will take place in history, but rather a recapitulation of what God is doing between the first and second comings of Christ. We study the bowls and the seals and the trumpets as being really parallel and linked to each other. And they're teaching us unique things about God, about his mercy, about his judgment, about the way he puts away evil, about the new creation that's coming. And we see it from different angles. Why? Because God wants to give us this, this front row view as to his character and the glory he deserves and the punishment sin deserves and his power to conquer sin and death and judgment and his promise to keep the saved safe all the way to their heavenly home. And so it's, it's, it's like that. I don't, you know, I don't, what, what's, Oh, you guys, I'm such a numbnuck. I just am a knucklehead. What is, what's the biggest diamond on earth? The hope? What would you? I'm going with the hope diamond. The hope diamond is raised. Jan raised 10 points. Um, I think, so the hope diamond's pretty big, right? So, I, I, I've just seen, I've not seen it, but I've seen pictures of people looking at it, and it's, it's not like in a corner. Right? That you can just see it from one angle. It's, oh man, look at, oh gee, look at, oh, oh I thought it was good looking over there. I mean, that's, that's what these trumpet seals and trumpets and bowls are doing. 
God's wanting, God wants us to understand revelation. He wants us to know his heart. He wants us to know the power of his promises toward us. He wants to break our hearts and move us out into to, um, evangelism and mission and reaching every ethnicity for Christ. And so he gives us these, these depictions of himself and his purposes and judgment and redemption. So the trumpets signal throughout Scripture, they signal a call to battle, they signal a call for repentance, and they, and they signal a proclamation of victory. And it all relies on understanding the Old Testament. You guys, it's far more important that you give yourself to studying your Old Testament than in trying to force fit current events into Revelation. Far more important for you to understand what God has already said. What are the meanings of all of these images in, in, in the Old Testament so that we can properly apply them and what they mean to our hearts today. So the four horsemen pointed us back to Zechariah 6. The four trumpets point back to the plagues against Egypt. That's what you're going to see now. God judged Egypt in order to deliver Israel. And in doing so, God was responding to the prayers of his people. The book of Revelation is showing us that there's an ultimate exodus, isn't there? But this time, it's not, a, it's not just a nation that God is judging, but the wicked world system that is just just balled up its fist into the face of God, declaring it doesn't need him. It doesn't want him. He's irrelevant and he's impotent. As at the exodus from Egypt, God is going to judge the wicked world and deliver his people in response to their prayers. So, so you're going to see these, these, these redemptive storylines that are consistent between Genesis and Revelation. So verse 7 is the first trumpet, and it's the plague of hail and fire and blood. And the... the, the the, um, the Old Testament, it's a seventh plague. Pharaoh is just relentlessly standing against God's purposes and God's people. God's wanting to bring them out into the promised land. He is just doing all he can to harden his heart, to keep it from happening. And so the Lord caused hail and fire and lightning to fall. So this could, listen, I, I don't doubt that God could still do literal, miraculous elements in, in creation. And I think he likely will. But as your pastor, I think we've got to bring you back to the implications of the gospel on your hearts. I think that's really, and, and why do I say that? I think that's what, what would most help the seven churches that the letter was first written to. Don't you most need, not just, not just end times insurance, Hailstone hits <laughs> uh, Geico. Yeah. Yeah. Did I sign up <laughs> for end times insurance? I think that's what, guys, I just think sometimes we just react to scripture in our flesh. And God wants to change our hearts with it. God wants to change our hearts. So, Certainly, it could be literal lightning and things, but there, there certainly is an element that there's crops that are burned up. A third of the earth, trees, and grass leads to scarcity of food, possible famine, likely a lack of food uh, is going to give you know, powers that be. You know how, how ungodly earthly powers love to use crisis to fortify their own power and dominance over people. So that, I think that's what's more happening here. Verse 8, the second trumpet, a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea and the third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea die and a third of the ships are destroyed. Sounds a lot like a volcano. Well, the, 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 first, the first recipients of this book would have definitely resonated with that. When, the, when Pompeii was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius. But it's probably more than that too. Can God do that today? Yeah, I believe he can. But I think for our souls, he's wanting to show us that God is the king of kings. Mountains in scripture don't just speak of mountains. They speak of kingdoms. And it speaks of God overruling man's depraved desires for power and dominion and throwing them down. 
Jeremiah 51 speaks about that. He says, I'm against you, O great and destroying mountain, declares the Lord. Later in Revelation, we see God throwing Babylon, the fallen, the fall, which is representing all the fallen world systems of unjust governments and temptations and finding your purposes and satisfaction in other things besides God. And he describes Babylon as a mountain falling down. God has taken the powers of the world's systems and throwing them down in judgment. And just, just to, listen, I love our country. But don't think that the United States will be immune to this. The United States is not the eternal city, you guys. Verse 10, trumpet three blows. A great star falls from heaven, a blazing like torch, and it falls on a third of the rivers and springs of water. It's called wormwood, and many people die from the water because it was bitter. Points us back to the plague of turning the Nile into blood, and the water is undrinkable. Water, if you haven't noticed, in West Texas is necessary for life. And it's a strong judgment when fresh water is undrinkable. You know how many people around the world don't have drinkable water? All, all of this is, is the, the fall. Adam's sin brought a great consequence to the earth. But what's it supposed to do? Lead us to repentance. Lead us to repentance. Verse 12 the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, a third of the moon's darkened, a third of the day kept shining, a third of the night. Ninth plague, darkness spreads over Egypt. It's, it, the, the, do you remember what it says? It says, it was a darkness you could feel. You ever felt darkness, guys? It's not just something that goes bump in the night. It's a darkness of evil. It's a darkness of deceit and lies and hopelessness. I, I, I don't doubt that God can and may do things in the skies, but I'm more concerned about the darkness covering people's hearts and their need for the light of the gospel. I think that this is more talking about spiritual blindness, blinded by idolatry and hearts hardened toward the Lord and their need for the gospel as the only way their eyes can be opened. So just a little summary here before we go on. So, so God's judgments bringing fallen creation to an end to prepare it to become a new creation. Did you kind of notice that? That here's, here's creation before sin. And now here's sin in, enters the world and God gives the world over to futility. And, and now all of what's going on in a fallen world are related to his judgments about sin in a fallen world. And it's almost like God, one, a couple of theologians actually called it decreation. He, he did this beautiful work of creation, but now as it moves toward the second coming, he's actually decreating. He's actually taking all the elements of creation and wearing them down and bringing them to an end as the advent of a new creation that will come. One third, did you notice that we read that a lot? This would be good news for those of you who are no good at math, like me. Are we supposed to be, like, is this 0.33? How many threes do we go, right? Is this 3.33? It's not math. It's mercy. Why isn't it? Don't we deserve immediate expulsion? into eternal judgment, immediate. But God, there's this hesitancy. There's this, there's this one more chance. Here, I'm offering you one more time. Just know that my patience will not last forever. One third is not math, it's mercy. And that every earthly crisis or catastrophe, every destructive earthquake or tornado, every hurricane, every disease, every act of unjust government, every bit of suffering is God seeking to wake us up. Not just the world, it's not just offering repentance to the world. You guys, 
I'm, I sl I'm too drowsy as a Christian. I am so stinking drowsy as a Christian. I am so lured by leisure. I'm so, I, and I, as I get older, it's just easy to go, gee, retirement's looking good. <laughs> I, nothing against retirement. But I don't want to even view retirement like that. I want to be the most mission-minded retired guy ever. But oh, I can, dr I can get drowsy. I can listen to the siren song of the world thinking that this is really going to make me happy and this is really what's going to last. And God continually, every trial, every crisis, it's God saying, wake up, Billy, my dad. <laughs> my dad. I don't know how many times, this is an old habit of mine, I guess. I don't know how many times my dad had to come back in my room when I was growing up. And it was, right? It's time to get up, son. Right. Oh, okay, Dad. <laughs> and with each time, it was, it was less inviting. <laughs> it almost became a warning. It's time to wake up! It's time to wake up! Are we living for what Jesus died for? That's our purpose! That's our purpose. Verse 13, this eagle now comes into the picture, flying, and he's got this loud voice of condemnation. Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth. And, and it's talking about what's going to happen through the next three blasts that the angels are about to blow on their trumpets. And he talks about those who dwell on earth. And it's important to highlight what he's saying there. Seven times in Revelation... That, that phrase is used, and it's always referring to unbelievers, earth dwellers. Believers living on earth are sealed. Wasn't that such a good, good news from chapter 7 last week? They're sealed. They're protected by God against his judgment. And, and their true and eternal home with God is, is heaven if they die before his second coming, and ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. Oh, that, that, so it's really good news for the believer. Not so good news if you're an unbeliever. The believers, right along with unbelievers, we have to deal with 9-11. We have to deal with corrupt politics. We have to, we get cancer. We, we, we walk alongside unbelievers and we shed tears like they shed tears. With hope, though. With hope. But now he's speaking specifically about those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 4, the fifth trumpet blows. A star falls. Keys given to the shaft of a bottomless pit. He opens it. Smoke and locusts with the power of scorpions come out. They're told, don't harm the grass or the green plants or the trees only the people without the seal of God on their foreheads, meaning only those who are not genuinely saved by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus, do you remember, he sent his disciples and they came back with joy because the demons were submitting to them. Remember that? And Jesus said to them in Luke 10, 18, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Meaning that as the disciples went out to spread the good news of Christ and his gospel, Jesus says, I already see Satan being defeated. And of course, at the cross, as we go through Revelation, you're going to see how utterly defeated Satan was. And even though he's a defeated foe of Christ, he's now like a wounded animal. He knows his end is near, and so he prowls about in his arrogance and self-exaltation like a lion seeking whose faith he can devour, who he can deceive, and who he can get to believe a lie about the goodness of God. And he was given the key. Satan is, so in, notice this. It's not that Satan just came and snatched it. Satan has no authority except that God gives him, and all of that is so that Satan will just be a... A pawn in the purposes of accomplishing the glory of God. So he's given this key 
Um, and he can only do what will accomplish God's purposes in judgment and redemption. So the pit is opened. Smoke and locusts come out with the power of scorpions. I don't think it's literal locusts here. I think this, it, I, but I do think it's literal demonic attacks. As locusts, they seek to eat away. So let's, there, there's some imagery here. I don't know if you ever have studied, I mean, just some issues that were happening in Africa over the past few years, and just issues of locusts and their destruction. I want you to think of a locust doing that to your soul. Eating away at the souls of people. Offering temptations. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, listen. Doesn't this look good? Oh, come on. God knows you won't die if you do this. Just offering all of these temptations. Oh, this will make you happy. If you had that job, you had that salary, you had that girlfriend. Oh, all these things will make you happy. And so you eat. You take a bite. But the more you eat of that diet the more starved you are. You, you're sitting, and it's so deceptive, you guys. We, we are eating at the table of the world, and our, our spiritual bodies are looking more like the prisoners at Auschwitz. That's what our spiritual lives, that's, what, that's what's happening in the life of an unbeliever. Oh, this is so good. This is, oh, that's so, no, well, okay, that's past. I'll, go, I'll, I'll just go to another table of the world. And meanwhile, I'm just dying. I'm, I'm, I'm the living dead. That's really what the scripture calls it. And what about this scorpion sting? It's, it's speaking of suffering. It's speaking of the lies of the devil. That it's too late. This is what you get for following me. Let me, let me kind of give you an idea of, of what this, I think, looks like and how the devil lies and cheats and steals. There, I was told of a, uh, in, the, in, in Alaska and the areas where there's just a lot of freeze, one of the ways farmers that had chicken coops would deal with coyotes, because coyotes don't exactly come out on your schedule, right? So, so they would take a two-edged sword and they would, they would just soak it in chicken blood. And they would put, just put it in the ice, and the, the farmers would just go to bed. Well, boy, those coyote saws would smell the chicken blood, and they would come, and they would just start licking that chicken blood. And oh, it's so good. I'm not a coyote, but I'm guessing. And it's amazing because, and it's weird. It's like the more I lick the sword, the more blood. There seems to be. Next thing you know, the scorpion stings. And they die. Why? They were licking up their own blood. I think that just describes so much of what Satan does to unbelievers and how he tries to play those tricks with believers too. Those who are sealed by God are safe. Only unbelievers following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, those are the only ones who are in view there. He, 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 what, a, what a horrible master Satan is. He lures people to follow him with all of his delicacies and then he attacks them and punishes them because they followed him. Verse 5, it talks about five-month period. Well, that's interesting. It's the life, life cycle of a locust. But it's another mercy. It's five months that this is going on. Why? Because God is continuing to mobilize his people, to put them in front of lost people and all that they're going through in the end times to give the gospel to them. He tells them not to kill them. Uh, they, 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 which is again, I mean, how many, oh boy, these are a couple of coffee questions. How many of you have been so discouraged with your own sin, with how the life has not turned out the way you hoped? That, 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 that haunting question, by now I should have been, I should have been married, by now we should have had five kids, by now I should have been promoted, by now I should, by now I, what, I mean, what a, boy, that could be a devilish question, couldn't it? How many of you have come to the place of despairing that life, even life's just not worth it? Death will be better. 
And God says, he won't let you die. Why? Because he's offering nail-scarred hands to you. It's not too late, is it? It's not too late. God doesn't just want to make you a better person. He wants to give you a brand new life. A life of being forgiven and treated in the love of a perfect father and give you a purpose for your life that you never dreamed possible. Verses 7 through 12 just goes further. They have heads with crowns. They seem to have authority, faces like people. There's, there seems to be intelligence and wisdom in what they're offering. Hair like a woman's. And this Bible speaks of a woman's hair as her glory. It's attractive and it draws you in, but it has teeth like lions. So isn't it just like Satan? He makes something look attractive just to get his teeth on you. To crush and destroy breastplates like iron that cannot be fought off with human effort. Unlike the Christian who has the sword of the spirit, the unbeliever has no weapon against Satan. The noise, that disorienting and confusion that his lies can bring into people's lives. The scorpion sting again, the devil knows. Here would be an anti-Christian phrase. The devil knows the plans he has for you. Plans to promise you everything and give you nothing. Plans to lie and deceive you. Plans to harm and hurt you. Plans to give you no future and no hope. That's what's going on here. If you haven't looked at John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress recently, you notice Abaddon and Apollyon. Oh, go read the encounter again between Christian and Apollyon. Uh, it's, it's the victory of Christians over the destroyer. Apollyon means destroyer. But an unbeliever has no advocate that he can appeal to the way Christian did in the story. And then verses 13 through 15 reveal the second woe that comes with the blast of the sixth trumpet. And a voice from the altar says to the angel to release the four angels who are stationed at the great river Euphrates. They're being released to kill a third of mankind. So here we go with the math, but it's really mercy. Angels are holding back the four winds at the end of the earth. where These are good angels. They're holding back these demonic powers from what the, the, the commentators seem to agree on. And, and these demons are now being allowed to be released. The Euphrates, what is that about? Does that, does that mean we force fit the Middle East into this picture? Well, there could be certainly implications that are going to come from the Middle East. Is this Iraq would be specifically the area. But if we use the Old Testament as our guide, it's representing the dividing line between peace and safety. Uh, be, between where Israel was and people like Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia who would cross those lines seeking to enslave and conquer and overpower. So that's what, that, that's what that, the heart of that is talking about. And verses 16 through 19, this, this essentially it's 200 million mounted troops Double myriad of myriads is the, is the literal. It's an incalculable number. I know people might say, well, that, that could only be China. Again, you see, well, we, we, just, we just tend to rush to let's force fit something into Revelation. Yeah, and listen, it won't surprise me. I think this, this, these, this, this war force, I think it's demons coming that God is allowing to, to the, in the last of the last days to bring mass deception into our world. It's already bad. But can you, listen, and it's already happened. Didn't it happen with Hitler? Mass deception. Don't you worry about our country? And I'm, I'm not getting political here. We need to see this with gospel eyes. All the misinformation. I want to be careful. I think there's been misinformation that hasn't been malicious. I think there's lies that are told. I think you weave misinformation and lies and fear together. And you have a recipe for mass delusion. Now, will that affect government leaders? Or you bet it will. You bet it will. Could that affect a China deciding to bring a lot of its troops into the picture? You bet it will. 
but I don't think that that's mainly what this is talking about. I think this is talking about the, the fallen heart of man wanting personal glory and wanting to have power and wanting to have happiness and not wanting God for it. I think this is about Satan enslaving people to their passions, punishing them with their fears and their doubts. And, and by the way, mass delusion has never been as easy as it is today because of the internet. So you don't even have to go hooky spooky with these ugly pictures of the devil. Just get those lies out there. The more we can get people hearing the lie, the, the quicker they're going to believe it. But what's the lie? Not who should be president. Not who started the coronavirus. It's the lie that you can have life without Jesus Christ. That's the lie. And God calls people of truth to bring the gospel to where it's so needed. Aren't you thankful for Christ bearing all of the wrath we've just been looking at? At the cross? See, that's what, please don't, don't get far from the cross in your study of Revelation. Everything that we're seeing happening in all of these judgments, I wish there's a better way, temporary judgments, warning judgments, all of these things fell on the innocent Son of God as he hung there in our place, bearing God's wrath to make us God's sons and daughters. Every offer of mercy to the unbeliever should mobilize the believer to obey God, to commit ourselves to evangelism, to multiplying and maturing disciples locally and globally. You know how you can do that immediately? Come be with us next Saturday. Let's go as a church family into our neighborhood and love our neighbors with the gospel. You know how you can do that immediately? Do you know there's lost people in this building every Sunday? Some are in this room. I don't, I don't doubt that. I, I, I'm a little concerned as we go into this last little section on repentance. I'm a little concerned that the United States church is filled with church attenders who never repented. But you know how you can become immediately involved in evangelism? You know who all the little sinners are in our church? They're really cute. Do you hear them over next door? Not all of them, just so you go. Let's go. Don't send me an email. Uh, thank God your child is saved. I'm so glad of that. But there's a lot of kids that don't know Jesus yet. If you've, if you've struggled knowing how to live more evangelistically, why not get your feet wet with probably one of the most important evangelistic areas our church could be involved in, and that's with the children. What are you waiting for? I mean, don't stop. Run to Sarah and, and, and serve. The last point is this. God calls for repentance to save sinners and sanctify saints. And you see that in those last few very sad verses. That even with all of the suffering and deception and death, those who are still alive, who are not believers, don't repent when given the chance. They don't repent from their works. They continue to build their own empires. I'll, I'll just, I'll just something, do something. Dear. I'll be entrepreneurial. I'll, I'll be self-sufficient really all for self-exaltation. They, they continue to bow down to their idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. They continue to have no repentance of their murders, i.e. anger. Murdered anybody lately, everybody? How many, how many of us have been angry in the last 24 hours shooting bullets? Isn't that what Barnabas said? Shooting bullets with my heart at people. Sorcery, sexual... I mean, do you see what this is saying? This is saying that in spite of the world obviously coming to a conclusion and coming to an end, people are still going to be devoted to sexual immorality? That's, that's being deceived, isn't it? 
whether you're a believer or unbeliever, every adversity and crisis in our sin-bound and fallen world is an opportunity to repent, to refuse to trust in ourselves or our riches or our works or of other people, etc., and to press in and trust in and obey Jesus. This, this, I, I have a little bit left, and I, I just... I, I, it's too important for me to rush through, and I need to close. Um, I'll pick it up next time that I preach. I think it, it can be a little bit of an intro to where we go when I'm up next. Um, could you stand with me? Eric, do you want to do you want to come and and again? Oh. Uh, if you need to leave, totally understand. Totally understand. But if you just want to linger a little bit longer, that we turn our hearts to the Lord in thankfulness that all the wrath we've seen unfold in these last of the last times, in the judgments that take place between the first and second coming of Jesus. Oh, dear God, what love that the judgments that we deserved fell upon our Savior. I think that's one thing for us to just, just rejoice in this morning about the mercy of God. And I think the other element is, oh, may God fill us with the Holy Spirit to be evangelistic like never before. Please, oh God. 